Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. So, <laughs> on that note, <clears throat> uh, I appreciate you taking the time and coming on the Opera Biz Podcast. My pleasure. For a little chat, uh, especially since we haven't had anybody um, on that does what you do. Which is, which is great. The whole point of this podcast is to discuss the multiple jobs, how you can work in the opera industry, and it doesn't have to be... I mean, the opera industry is so much more than, I'd say, it's but just the singers. But <laughs> there's so many more dimensions for the opera industry. Yeah, it's like the original interdisciplinary art form. Like, before there was film, there was opera. There was opera, and it was everywhere, and everyone knew about it, and everyone knew the players, but... So let's talk um, predominantly about uh, a little bit about your background and um, kind of how you got into writing libretti and what specifically you do. So let's talk first about what you do now, like what is your job? Okay. Um, so my job, oh, so many hats, but officially my job is... Um, I'm a librettist, and so that basically means I write the books and lyrics for new opera um, in my home language, which is English. Um, and what that means is a bunch of things. It means everything from um, it's like initial concept sometimes to, um, to crafting the storyline to uh, proofing a vocal score for a composer to lots of lots of different things. but basically storyline and making sure that the words that I'm making are singable. Hmm. I like that. I mean, that is the kind of the end concept yeah. for opera is the singable part. <laughs> I mean, bit. my shower has heard pretty much every libretto I've ever written <laughs> in like very bad, like, like there's probably like a musical theater version of right. every. <laughs> Do you learn every score you work on? Um, I think usually by the end, by the time it goes into production... You know a fair amount of it? Uh, yeah, most of it. And, yeah. and I probably sung, certainly all the female parts, I probably sung all of them yeah. privately or at the piano or with the composer. Yeah. Now, you actually were a singer. I was. Slash sort of are. Sometimes still am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My arm is sufficiently twisted. <laughs> what's, the, what, what's your background? How'd you fall into... I mean, this is obviously a very narrow field, a very niche thing. How did you end up here in this position yeah do you know it's like that perfect you know people always say like oh nothing's ever wasted and I was always like yeah yeah um and then I became a librettist and that's 100% true so uh I had been singing as a teenager but always like alongside you know academic work and whatever whatever and then um I went to college and I read history and I, I carried on singing at night and then I actually got a job in children's publishing at this very unusual company that basically works the way the film industry works in that they craft storylines to order for big publishers. Okay. Um, and like say HarperCollins would say, hey, we have a hole in our YA list aimed at girls between 12 and 15, pitches a story, and then all the editors would get into a room. And So I was doing that, which was kind of bonkers, and then still singing at night, um, practicing every night. And then I was like, you know what? Like. I, I'd done, before I went to college, I spent a year doing like a community training program that English National Opera were running called The Knack, which 
this, I'm so digressing. This is being, this is taking way too totally long. Fine. But, <laughs> but I was in one of those golden years where the drama director was Rufus Norris, who is now head of the National Theatre, and Mary King, who is kind of like the fairy godmother of contemporary opera in the UK. Like, she's just amazing. So they were my teachers. And, and so I kind of got this vision of not only what the world of opera was, you know, to me as an 18 year old, when you're like super starry eyed and you're like, I just want to sing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, um, but like, there were a lot of people in that program who either were like not quite ready for a yap or they were coming back in their 40s and were really struggling to break back into the business and it was hard, maybe they'd had kids or whatever, take another route. And so it was really, it was a really formative experience in that I think it showed me how long people, people's love affair with, with opera is and mm -hmm. with singing is. And it kind, of it kind of gave me this intentionality about like, I'm never gonna leave this industry until I've done all the things I want to do and I'm because I don't want to regret anything ever. Mm -hmm. So so then after I've been working in publishing for a bit, I decided that I would go and go to grad school because I was like, well, I've been working full time and still singing. So I guess I have enough get up and go to like train. Yeah. So I trained, I went to NEC and then I for two years and then I went to Chicago and carried on studying with a, a lovely uh, singing teacher out there called Stephen Smith. And then I got into the um, a training program again with English National Opera. They've been like this weird cyclical part of my journey. Um, had a fog shift in the middle of the year. Of course. Of course. Like, why wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then the following year, when I was kind of like still trying to figure it all out, I was singing in a festival in Brighton. Um, I was actually singing in a play that was a biopic of an opera singer. And the playwright, probably because I was a pain in rehearsals and had views, <laughs> had views, unsurprisingly, How about... How dare you have views I as the know. singer. <laughs> um, about the portrayal of the singer, specifically, <laughs> the female singer. It was, yeah, um, it was before Me Too. And it was, a, it was a really tough story, unsurprisingly, because it was a, a period story about a woman. And he said, have you, have you considered writing? And I, and I said, yes you know, thinking about publishing, but. So when I was in grad school, I'd had the opportunity to write my first ever libretto. I had no idea what I was doing um, for Daniel Bernard Romain, who, who recently wrote We Shall Not Be Moved. Um, but I, you know, that was my first, my first sort of try at it. And so then when this director and the playwright of the piece, um, you know, said, do you want to do this? And, and I was like, well, you know, I, I'm still singing and, and he said, well, I'm the head of this new program with the Royal Opera House and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama that is to create the next generation of, of new makers of opera, you know, and you, were, you have two weeks to put to, or a week to put together an application or something like that. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like but, just diving in last yeah, minute. Yeah, no, bearing in mind like we were still doing a show. Right, um, of course. <laughs> And I said, well, you know, I, I'd really like to, and this is great, but I've got a master's degree and I have student debt and, you know, and they said, well, how about we pay you? And, and I said, okay. Right, there you go. <laughs> so it kind it's of- It's different when somebody else offers you money. Right, yeah, 
Yeah, that especially like when you're when you've been a singer as well, and yeah. that is not always what's happening, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it kind of really fell from heaven, and then before I knew it, I sort of found myself in this amazing new pro program with. They basically embedded us in um, the opera school at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which only takes, it's highly selective and it only takes about 10 people a year. Um, and they do full productions and it's basically like a mini company, mm -hmm. a bit like, you know, they do the same thing at Juilliard and, and various other places. Um, and our task was to write an opera for those singers. Um, and obviously they give you a lot of, in, you know, they give you input along the way in terms of like, and, but it's interesting because my first, my first experience of writing an opera wasn't in the abstract. It wasn't just a fantasy that some composer came to me and said, I had this idea, I want to do this because I'm obsessed with this or, you know, it wasn't like a, a wild dream. It was like, these are the parameters, these are the singers. Did they give you storyline as well? No, no. So that was, the story itself was up to you. Totally free. But the parameters and the voice types were kind of what was provided. Yeah, and we, I mean, we had, we couldn't use everyone either. Okay. Um, although I massively broke that rule. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we had to pitch to the opera department. Um, so we had to pitch three ideas. So they had to be greenlit. Mm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then and I, I think because I had been a singer and because um, I, was a, I was a sort of Rossini handle so that was like, so I did Princess, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and, uh, and I had often been really frustrated um, by just not having the breadth that I wanted as an actress and as a performer. Um, and so I was really determined that my singers were going to be really excited about the roles that we wrote for them, that it was going to not necessarily be the types that they always yeah. got to play, yeah. you know, that, um, yeah, so that was really my intention going in. And I think it was so helpful to be in an environment where, I mean, these singers are like, they're, the, they're fantastic young singers there you know, really the top of their game as far, you know, as far as the UK goes. Um, and uh, so I had like a fleet of Ferraris to test my first, you know, piece on and they were so game and, but there was always, there was also a lot of like advice in the mix and there was a great producer and there was this incredible director called Martin Lloyd Evans who works all over the place in the UK and a bit in Europe and, um, so there were all these kind of people guiding and massaging it in the right direction, which meant that the pieces had to serve the artists and they had to be interesting and, and dynamic and we couldn't, you know, go on ego trips, which I think is really, especially when it's something's a first work, mm -hmm. you'll bring, there's so much you want to say. Yeah. Always yeah. in the first work, you know, you always say too many things. Oh, try. You want to say everything. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to leave any stone unturned. Yeah. And you want to put it all out there and rather than editing and yeah. editing and editing. Yeah. And, you know, and the thing is that piece I edited within an inch of its life and it's still too dense. You know, yeah. I look at it now and I'm like, oh, bless. But it was amazing. And then after that, it was just like there was no stopping me. And, you know, I just took every opportunity that I could. And Guildhall were very generous. They... I really loved working with the singers, which makes sense. Um, and they invited me back as a fellow and I ended up um, kind of reforming their, 
they were doing a program with the Wigmore Hall to create new art song and um, it hadn't been there. There just hadn't been a lot of, I think a lot of music schools, conservatories and suffer from this, which is just the siloing where mm -hmm. everyone's so busy that no one talks to each other. Yeah. And I think if, if, Collaboration isn't, this is like a sidebar, I guess, about education, but I find if collaboration isn't in the metric of success, it just doesn't happen yeah. because everyone has so many demands on their time. Yeah. So I ended up kind of coming in as this little pivot linchpin mm -hmm. for that program and helping the composers and the singers and the writers that were working in that program to dialogue, which mm. hit, they hadn't been yeah. at all. It was like I'd found the thing and it just started to flow. Mm. Um, I was getting so much creative satisfaction out of what I was able to draw out of singers and the stories I was able to tell um, that I just kept kept walking through the door and the next door kept opening and so I just kind of kept walking and and then I found myself um, being uh, I heard about um, the program that uh, Larry Edelson founded. Uh, at American Lyric Theatre, which it was interesting because there are only, there are starting, you know, because America particularly is commissioning so much new work right now. And so there are a lot of little new opera programs kind of springing up everywhere, like Mushrooms, uh, which is fantastic. And I think what I'm seeing in, in the US is more commissioning because there's this huge spirit of American entrepreneurialism that is driving um, these kind of disruptor opera companies to or or companies like ALT where their intention is to commission and support artists. Right. So they're not saying, you, you know, there are increasing numbers of festivals and increasing numbers of commissions and that's fantastic, but actually we're not aiming, you know, opera is so, in, to write a good opera, <laughs> I should say, <laughs> to write a, an opera that is a joy for audiences and creatives and, um, and performers. And that, you know, hopefully we're building repertory, right? Mm. That's what we're actually trying to do. Right. And that takes so much time and refinement that um, you want it to be done again. And I think um, in the States, there is a bit more of that because there's longer term support. Yeah. Um, or there is increasingly, I think it wasn't always that case, but increasingly there's a recognition that even small and medium-sized companies with, with relatively small budgets can partner right. with others um, and that that is to the benefit of everybody. And what a lot of people, especially singers, don't know or don't have the reason to run across is that if there is funding, whether it's public or private, mm -hmm. out there for opera, mm -hmm. so much of it is for new music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to throw their money at the same stuff that's been done for yeah. hundreds of years. They want new American music, new American projects. Yeah. And um, I know I've been part of companies and offshoot companies and smaller companies that have done new music because that's what allowed us to fund everything else. Yeah. Completely. And so it's 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 really prevalent out there. So if you're listening to this and you want to do a project and you need money for it, look for grants for new music yep. that also cover uh, cost of working fees and stuff like that. And Amen. Especially the latter. <laughs> yeah. And like that's a real thing. But unless you dig through those grants, you're not going to know that the, that exists. Yeah. Well, also, you're not going to have this, the, the Mozarts of tomorrow if you're not 
you know, commissioning a lot of work. Right. What people don't realize about like what we think of as the golden age of opera, you know, is that actually at that time, 80% to 90% of what was on stage was new work. Yeah. So the period that we think of as having created all the gems of the repertory yeah. was a period like now where suddenly everyone was commissioning. Imagine if the Met was doing 90% new opera. Yeah. I mean, just amazing. Um, but that that is what is required to have the hit rate of right. the golden age of opera, right? You're going to have so, so many works that just don't land yeah. or they don't find the right demographic in the city that they were released right. or culturally they didn't quite make sense and they may land 10 years later there's so many there are so many reasons why you can produce hundreds of works and two of them stick right and sometimes i mean we're still finding that right you know like we're still digging out things that failed when yeah. they, you know maybe they were too forward thinking or whatever yeah. and now they really speak to us you yeah. know having molded for years <laughs> or we put them on and we're like oh yeah there was a reason that people stopped doing this <laughs> also that but over that a veil will be drawn less yeah. <laughs> so yeah so talk a little bit more about um alt and that okay <laughs> i mean because larry's a- gonna hunt me down <laughs> I will talk about ALT. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, American Lyric Theatre, um, yeah, was founded by Larry Adelson, and he was also at Opera Saratoga, um, and uh, it it's real. It, he co-founded it, I believe. I'm getting this right, and so, don't quote me. While well, you are quoting me, never mind. He co-founded it with um, Mark Adamo and um, uh, and. Mark Campbell and, and various other people, um, but it, it was really coming from Larry to, to I think they, they felt that, and I certainly remember this because when I was in graduate school, and, and maybe this was just my perception, but um, that kind of new music and new composition was in a bit of a ghetto and you were kind of like, you were like a freak who had perfect pitch mm-hmm. and maybe didn't make very much noise. Yeah. Or, um, or you were like an opera singer with a big voice that was never going to sing anything written after like, you know, 1900. Um, And I think Larry rightly um, saw that there was something missing, that that what we were missing from the operatic landscape really was training for (laughs) prospective creators of opera because the form is really specific. And the reason that maybe we weren't getting what we needed for the form was that that um, tradition uh, of, of creating opera for a specific house or for specific singers or for specific parameters had been lost. Um, and so there was a need really for um, an immersive uh, program that allowed um, prospective creatives uh, to meet each other and then to take input from the people who were succeeding in the form. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I still, I think, I think this is still true. There is no other program like ALT in existence that gives you, in the first few months, um, you know, access, and not just access, but hours and hours of FaceTime with Jake Heggie, Mark Adamo, Barbara Hannigan, like all the people that have made opera what it is now, mm-hmm. teaching that program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And tell you what's what. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, Mark Campbell, who's written how many of the contemporary operas, you know, he comes in and gives you hours of time um, on what is needed to make a new libretto. And it was really interesting for me to have been through 
the two programs basically in the world that teach that in a very different in different ways yeah um the other thing that is interesting that alt does um i know american opera projects pairs composers and um singers which is super valuable um i think one of the things that alt does is they bring in a bunch of singers in um your sort of first immersion a few months of all the different not only voice types but the fox mm. and they have them sing um two two pieces one of which is like fits like a glove and you're like i roll the bed roll out of bed with a hangover at 8 a.m and this is my jam and you know and i can barely sing this on a good day yeah and then they talk about why nice um you know and so few composers because you know the reality is like opera is very competitive and there's especially if you're a soprano god bless you all um there's always someone, you know, nipping at your heels and you don't want to be standing in front of a composer saying, I do this badly, right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. which is understandable, but equally that robs them of the knowledge because they want to make you sound good and you want to make the composer sound good. Yeah. And so if you're not having a dialogue about like how your instrument functions, then they can't write to its success, you right. know? and you can't write to the success of the narrative that they're trying to tell musically or dramatically. So um, the other thing that LT does, which is amazing, um, is you write every week and then you get to rewrite the following week after hearing singers do it. Nice. Um, and it's very confronting. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very Socratic. You know, everyone, uh, everyone in the group gives feedback on kind of what they're getting. Um, so there's nowhere to hide really in a really good way, right. in a really constructive way. Yeah. Um, so that really just gave me a huge number of tools, um, but also like made me feel like an infant in the best way. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you, ALT. And also thank, they're very realistic in the sense of they pay. That's fantastic. That's <laughs> they are unique. Yeah. For that, they believe in paying their artists to learn and to develop in the form. Yeah. And, you know, this form is only going to improve in the stories it can tell if we think it's worth paying for and therefore people who don't have private means can do it. Right. So there's a diversity of voices at the table. Yeah. And that is something that, you know, ALT gets. Um, I think they're even trying to get the next cohort healthcare. Um, so they're, they're very serious about that. And I really, I think that, kind of putting your, yeah, literally putting your money where your mouth is, I think is something that I really believe in and get behind and I'm grateful to them for. Yeah. I think the most thing, the, the thing that has been valuable is just having, being a, writing a libretto is a really specific skill. It's a skill that people don't know very much about and often conflate, conflate with other types of writing. Yeah. And it, actually it, it's highly specific. It's, um, I mean, it's like writing a screenplay is, a very specific form yes. of writing. Like, yes. There are people who write fiction, whether it's in novel, novella, or uh -huh. short story form. Uh -huh. And if you're pitching to a studio, you very rarely, I mean, it happens, but you very rarely pitch the novel form. Yeah, no. Or the short story <laughs> form yeah. of your story. You, If you don't know how to write a screenplay, yeah. you hire somebody to turn it into screen, screenplay form. Yes. And then you figure out what the hell you're going to do with all the exposition 
and all that kind of stuff. Let's talk about exposition. I mean, that's a huge thing in opera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that's like one of like in the top five commandments as far as an opera libretto. If there's a ton of exposition required to tell the story, it's not an opera. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Or like you're focusing on the wrong bit and you need to narrow your focus. Yeah. Because it, opera is just not something that opera does well. One of my friends is on the show The Deuce and mm -hmm. he also has done, um, I mean, he's been an actor for quite some time um, and he does script he, script editing and script reading for other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's seen so much yeah. that... Um, His perspective is super valuable. Yes. Yeah. And he's offered to read some of my stuff and he said, um, I'm going to give you a heads up. I don't read exposition because if it's not in the dialogue yes. and it does not keep me engaged and tell the story through the dialogue, yes. I don't care. Yes. Write a book. Amen. I don't care that it's on the script. He's like, I just don't, I, I don't care how good the exposition is. I don't read it. Yeah. It is extremely difficult for me to cut out the exposition, throw it all in the dialogue and make it all part of the character interaction. It, you know, and it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't get easier. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say it does, but it doesn't. I still have to like almost externally apply that to like rule to myself, yeah. you know, because in, in the process of making the thing, you know, sometimes you, ha also because as, I think as a creative, you have to answer those questions for yourself. Right. So it's, it's important to sort of know what the exposition is. Yeah. But the, fin the final product needs to stand without it. And if it can't, then it's not done. Yeah. You know. Um, well, I mean, we, we saw in this particular production of Tito that the Met's doing, that we needed... Yeah. Either more dialogue about something specific and they cut it out. Yeah. Or we needed exposition to show what happened. But either way, we ended up with not quite a full tale. Completely. Completely. And yeah, a tale that, you know, actually the bits that were missing were very human drama and mm. could have happened on stage and actually would have made it far more pertinent to... Um, our interests, I think, as a, as a culture now. But yeah. anyway, that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I do, think, I do think that's an interesting one because, you know, re uh, composers, especially contemporary composers, because they tend to want to three-compose largely. There are still number composers, but not as many. Yeah. And what do you do about what would be recit? Right. You know? Right. Um, you know, sort of Strauss-managed dialogue that was really almost dialogue as it would be in a play yeah. in some of his work incredibly successfully. Um, but that is a real, that's a real challenge, I think, especially if you're trying to tell a story that isn't, um, that has a lot more character detail and nuance that you need to be in the text as well as in the music. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm starting to push up against, I guess, as I mature as a librettist. How do I do this in an era where we're not fond of recitative? Mm -hmm. We're fond of sort of fully sung through type situations. The composers are fond of it. Yes. <laughs> That's fair. Because <laughs> so help me God, I have seen some shows where I'm like, just give me some, even if it's a company recit, it doesn't have to be seco recit, but yeah. give me some company recit. To break this down because... Oh man, that would help me so much. The sheer <laughs> amount of attempting to compose through all this dialogue... Yeah, is... Is taxing. 
yeah. it can be taxing to the audience. It also takes way too much time. Yeah. Yeah. And then what I feel is is when you're in that position where you you then have to realize like, well, like, this opera can't be four hours long. Nobody <laughs> right now is going to sit through that. Right. We need to chop this down. Then you're losing content. Right. That I feel like I feel like right now audiences would be okay with doing traditional recitative or dialogue. That's such an interesting question, isn't it? Like, and I, I literally, the project that I've just been working on, I've been like going back and forth about that mm. as, um, because in its original version, the first time it was workshopped, it had a huge chunk of dialogue in mm. it, um, chunks of dialogue. Um, but it's such a, I also understand why it doesn't happen right. because it's so difficult to manage the, you know, sung, anything sung has so much weight um, that when you slip in and out of dialogue, it, it's very hard for the dialogue to not just recede or for things to flatten. You need such, re and, and I still don't know whether it's possible really, like you need such potent actors to make the dialogue read with the same music. As, and the same like intentionality yeah. as as the singing does, or it needs to be built into the form, right? You know, so that you're like we're do we're singing this we're because right, you know. Now, while I agree with that, I would still say that a lot of what we get in new opera then is almost a hurried music to get through the quote unquote dialogue. That's true. Like. It's the throwaway music that I have to set this to music. Yeah. So this is the last thing I'm worried about. This melody is anybody's going to remember. I don't care about this. It just sort of has to get me from A to B. Mm. Mm -hmm. And this is the vehicle to do it. But I'm fully composing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, I, I've seen so much where that comes off as half-assed. Yeah. Or, or incomplete. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're right there. Like, I mean, it's interesting because like, when you look at someone like... It can be done. Here's the thing. If the script, and this is like, it's my job, right? If, yeah. the, if the script is good enough, <laughs> she says, hoist, that is your job. Hoist yes. by her own petard. Um, if the libretto is good enough, then, you know, every line is a piece of information that the audience needs and has its own flow and music and lift. Yeah. And the sensitive composer will be the musical dramaturg and be inspired not necessarily by the poetry but by the intention of the line and yeah. then it will sing yeah you know and that's what you get in verdi and strauss and and that kind of thing right but if the text isn't functioning the way it needs to to elicit that response in the composer mm. then what you get is the hurrying music because understandably the composer's like eh. right or maybe the composer and this is another thing about the training of composers you know not very many composers are huge fans of poetry and literature right some of them are right a lot of them never go to the theater right and a lot of classically trained composers would never be seen dead at a musical <laughs> totally true unfortunately though <laughs> musicals and theater have a lot to teach us about the landing of a line yeah and, oh yeah you know and well because every theater actor that i know would radically disagree with wildly disagree with your comment on it needs the music to have that weight Mm. because all the theater actors that I know would be like, I can do it without the music. Correct. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're totally right. And I mean, that is the, that, that's one of the things that I think makes a librettist different yes. from 
a, a playwright. Absolutely. Because a playwright is trying, and obviously it varies playwright to playwright, but they're making a lot of the music, but they're also stepping out and leaving it to the actor. Yeah, hugely. And, yeah, and... Whereas you're, you're not quite leaving it to the singer, you're leaving it to the composer. Right. To give the singer something to work with. Yeah, and depending on the composer, you know, I will indicate more or less what my read on that line is. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I will send the composer who, who doesn't think I'm just being lazy and sharing this part of my process, but like I will send a composer effectively the bad play version of yeah. my libretto yeah. so that they can see all the details that are in there so that when they come to compose the, the skeleton that I end up leaving them with, they know what has been removed and what I envision as being there. Mm -hmm in terms of like character detail and what the emotional beats are. And because sometimes in crafting this thing that's a libretto that has to maybe say elicit song form yeah, or, you know, um, rhyme, not always, thank God now, right. um, love blank verse. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes in serving the needs of, of making it sing, um, you need the composer to put back in the yeah. emotional intent for you, you know, because I mean, really good singers can make up for really rubbish work as far as musical dramaturgy. Absolutely. <laughs> but like, God love them. Like they shouldn't have to. They should just be like, oh, it means this, you know, yeah. which is what happened when, as a singer, when you look at like Samuel Barber or Minotti or Britain, yeah. you'll look at the page and you're like, oh, that's how she's feeling. Yeah. You know, and most of them had good librettists. Yeah, you look at the text and you know what the intentions are, but yeah. it's in the music too, you know? So that's what you want. You want the double whammy. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing about a libretto, like, man, they look awful on the page. They're so on the nose, they're embarrassing. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, not, they're not always, but like sometimes, and it's because so much is happening in an opera. Yeah. You know, like on stage, like, she's moving and the set and the orchestra and all the things and then like the director's concept which maybe has nothing to do with your original intention and whatever like <laughs> like there's so much going on that like you have to have like an iron grid my job is to make like an iron grid yeah and even still sometimes you see your work and you're like that's not what i wrote and then you're like but that's your fault lila <laughs> <laughs> doesn't happen very often but <laughs> every now and again so when you're working with a composer, yeah. how much of the musical intent or style is kind of preset and how much of it are you working through as you go? Or are you largely coming up with storyline, text, etc., and then they kind of yeah. set it? Yeah. Um, or is it changed dramatically from composer to composer? Yeah. Um, I'm, I think there are librettists who are... There are librettists who are very consistent in their in their style, mm -hmm. um, and someone actually told me recently that they they were starting to recognise like a a Lila Palmer <laughs> style. And I was awesome. Like, I don't know how I feel about that, um, but I think I try and be I try and be a chameleon because it's not my form. Yeah. Like I'm a. I just, I, I, I get so deeply that like if, if I have to control everything and, I, and it's my ego that's at stake, I shouldn't be a librettist. Mm. <laughs> um, so, um, well, we know ego can't be at stake because I don't know if 
anyone that can off the top of their head name ten librettists. So <laughs> you guys don't quite have the limelight. That's it's, yeah. Un- it's... Unfortunately, because you should, especially with new music. Yeah, I mean, I do think that like opera, you know, opera's ongoing navel gazing crisis with you know its success or failure as an art form for you know our times and the future is you know if we don't tell if we don't tell potent stories then no one cares Mm. you know so yeah but I also think like yeah you're right I I hope that I think I would hope that librettists come to have the same um, value in a commissioning process and in an artistic process as like maybe a musical theatre book writer lyricist would Mm -hmm. Um, especially because you know things are changing but it would be really nice right now the commissioning process is is still composer led so it's very rare that you know you can go to a house and say you know i have this idea as a writer mm. let's find a composer mm-hmm. that still doesn't happen you yeah. know and and it i think it should be able to happen absolutely um but i guess to return to your point about uh working with composers and and how i and style and stuff it depends on um it depends on the intimacy of the process a lot. So, you know, I have some regular collaborators who, you know, it becomes quite intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely lay out numbers, for sure. And I always say to composers, especially if I haven't worked with them compo- before, I'm going to give you songs. I'm going to give you arias. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the dialogue that moves, moves, moves us between them. And I'm going to give you intentional ensemble numbers. Um, but you can ignore them if you want to. Yeah. Um, I think the big thing that is probably consistent across everyone that I'm working with and in any form and whatever they're trying to do with the piece is I'm trying to give them the opportunity. You know, the human ear needs to hear things a few times before it recognizes them. Mm-hmm. And we respond positively as audiences to that repetition. Wagner taught us that. Right. I mean, I shouldn't say he taught it to us. He drove it home. Right. And, you know, not every composer believes in leitmotif. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to give you opportunities on what I would call like a systemic thematic level to um, create a shape for the piece. So I'm going to probably talk as a composer, like, if you want me to, if you don't, if you want me to just, like, write my libretto and that's fine. And (laughs) I say that's fine. That would make me sad. Um, (laughs) Because actually one of the joys is, like, the back and forth. Yeah. But, like, I will walk you through it and go, okay, here are the themes as I see them of the piece. Like, usually as we discussed in our, you know, planning meeting. And then, like, here are the ways in which that theme is revealing itself textually. Um, and depending on how experienced as well the composer is, like I've gone so far as to like color code running themes, mm-hmm. like textual themes. So mm-hmm. you're like, if you want to make this go all the way through musically, yeah. so I'm, I've given you this. Yeah. Because no, again, it goes back to like, and that sounds very like color in the dots. And I would never like tell a composer, you know, you should do this, but it's more like, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to set you up to succeed. Cause I know you've got a lot to think about as well. Right. Um, and not every composer is a has spent their life doing practical criticism of literature. Mm-hmm. So maybe they don't have they might not have the toolkit. Right. Um, 
and I'm not going to assume that or presume what anyone has or doesn't have. I'm just going to try and make it clear so that if they decide to do something else, it's a clear choice. Yeah. Not a lack of understanding. Just as you, know you I mean? haven't excessively studied composition. Right. And therefore right. wouldn't necessarily make certain composition choices. Right. But they would. Ex- exactly. And I will ask, you know, like, am I missing? And sometimes, I mean, <laughs> God love him. Sometimes, you know, a composer will say, oh, well, I've, I've done that theme that you can't hear, you know. And I'll be like, really? And they'll be like, and they'll explain it to me and I'll probably understand 75% of it on a good day. <laughs> and it's there. But I also value, I think, I think it's important that I am a musician. And I think at the same time, it's important, especially in processes where we don't have the luxury of having a dramaturg on board. Mm-hmm. It's really important that I retain my outside ears as much as possible. Yeah. Because when you're close to something, you know, or, you know, our composers are like so, are like conductors in terms of what they can hear so much detail but an audience if we're aiming for an audience of non-specialists then we have to write for what they can hear yes and so often with composers i'm like i know you think it's really obvious make it more right (laughs) embarrass yourself you know the same way that like a coach will say to a singer like do it to an extreme and then it might be enough you know it's like the same uh life lessons through opera right (laughs) You, you used the term dramaturg. I did. Which the is D word. not something that a lot of people are really familiar with, a position in a project that not a whole lot of people are positioned in it, are familiar with. Give me, um, give me the breakdown a little bit okay. on who that is, what they do. Okay. Um, so actually, I mean, even when I was a singer, I went my whole singing career not knowing what a dramaturg was. Right. I learned what one was last year, really. I mean, I knew that they existed, but I, I understood what they did when I went to ALT. Right. And that was because ALT has a, a dramaturg um, on staff. He was also a dramaturg at the Met and now at Santa Fe uh, called Corey Ellison. He was basically the queen of, um, of dramaturgy. Um, so I think part of the reason that dramaturgs, people are confused about what they do is because sometimes in different houses they do different things mm-hmm. and in different cultures they do different things. Um, so I would say as it pertains to a standard rep opera house, the dramaturg is doing things like writing program notes, titles, um, you know, they're unpacking the thematic and intellectual and musical information and con- cultural context of the opera for okay. the audience and for the creative and artistic staff if they need it. Yeah. Um, in the sort of European tradition they may also be creating say a concept for the season a lot of what we can know as regi theater is to do with like the intentionality of the european dramaturg and and the and the way they i suppose are driven to um give the reason why are we doing this work now Mm. so a, a dramaturg in a european house might be doing that yeah but as as it pertains to new work the dramaturg is the advocate for the audience. Okay. Um, so they are the person saying, this isn't clear. Yeah. They are the person telling you back the story yeah. in a non-judgmental way. Right. But this is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is so valuable. Um, I think the other reason that maybe people don't realize how 
useful and important and how everyone should have a drama take. <laughs> they are. Um, it's because directors are often, if a director is hired early in the process, a director can think that they are a dramaturg. Yeah. And, you know, it's also a control thing. Maybe they want to have their hand in that early. But I think, um, again, it comes back to that question of like, are you, write, are you writing the piece for the first production or are you writing the piece right. to write the best piece? Yeah. And I think for me, that is why you want a dramaturg and not the director as your dramaturg because yeah. you're not going to know if the piece functions in its bones on the score yeah. by itself without the mediation of what the director has chosen to do with the production. Yeah. Um, dramaturgs also, you know, collaboration is a marriage and some marriages are really smooth and others are a little bit up and down. Need a little mediation. And need a little mediation. And... Um, a good, a good dramaturg will be like a good marriage counsellor and will basically be neutral and try and make everyone play nicely in the sandbox and um, make sure that whatever is not being communicated between the creatives is resolved so that the work can be the best thing it can be. Mm -hmm. I've never needed to, <laughs> fortunately, um, I don't think I've ever needed to use the service of a dramaturg in that way, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I certainly know of instances where that's been extremely necessary. And I think, and sometimes it's just, you know, in the same way that, you know, like your partner or your parent or someone close to you can be saying things for a thousand years and then yes. someone else says it and you're yes. like, oh, <laughs> yep. you know, and you are so deeply embedded mm -hmm. when you're making um, that that third party saying, I know you think that this says this, but it doesn't right. because you cut that line back there and therefore that theme is no longer there that mm -hmm. you think is there. It's there in your head. Right. It's, but it's actually functionally gone. Because it's always been in your head. Yeah. 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 Um, so they're incredibly valuable um, as, a, as a mirror, really. Um, and there are starting to be more of them. Um, but there are also more people who call themselves dramaturgs than are dramaturgs in yeah. that way. And it's partly because... In theatre, a dramaturg means something right. related but different. Yes. Um, and I suppose it's like the specialisation of the form yeah. um, is reflected in the specialisation of the dramaturg. Yeah. Although, you know, I... There are three dramaturgs that I email regularly when I'm working. I also think that part of it's to do with a pride thing. Mm. Like, creatives don't want to admit that it isn't all just like their own genius fever dream. Oh, totally. 100%. <laughs> you know? And it, it's so I think it's ego. And, and as a result, you, often there isn't a dramaturg fee built into a process. And if there isn't, then I end up paying them myself. Yeah. And that's because I'd rather do that than, it, you know, it not be as good as it can be. It's funny because <laughs> I, I, do, I do a fair amount of marketing and we have the term brand experience marketer which they act as an advocate for the consumer and they go in and they look at the online presence they look at the commercials that are being done they look at the day-to-day -day workings of the business they look at whoever interacts with the public and all that kind of stuff and they judge it from the consumer's point of view there you go. and say i'm not getting the most out of you guys or you know what you guys do but i cannot figure it out 
Um, or Amen. I love the way you guys do work, but your online presence is aggravating. Or I don't get enough information <laughs> here. Or just sometimes flat out, this link doesn't work on yeah. your website. Yeah. Everything else may be great, but these two buttons go nowhere. Yeah. It's, which is the same thing as like, you know, that beat in act four has never landed. Ever. Yeah, that's, that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, I think that I feel like every new production needs that person. Completely. Um, that's such a good analogy. I love that. I was talking to, um, the, in, in the episode with uh, Clint Borzoni and John DeLosantos mm-hmm. on The Copper Queen, we talk a little bit about their dramaturg, who has been a huge facilitator in that project. And... Um, is exactly that person who never uses uh, negative reinforcement. Super important. Right. <laughs> but Super positive important. reinforcement yeah. and questions that more like, is this what you meant here? Uh-huh. <laughs> Where I mean, that's, is this going? Oh my gosh, like my whole year at ALT. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and I think that... That's really valuable too. We need to inculcate, I think, a, a critical, a constructive critical culture. Yes. As well. Yeah. Where it's like, I really love this. Not even I love this thing you're doing, but like, I got this, you know, from, from what I saw. Um, and I also have a question about whether you intend this or this. Right. You know, that's really useful information. I mean, I think it's invaluable to have somebody like that on your staff for a new production. And I think it would help us weed out the okay so we did 100 productions 10 were good two will become you know done consistently and then one is kind of canonized mm-hmm. it, it would help us bring that ratio a little more towards the middle amen i just think that it's all about like in the end we want an engaged satisfied audience yeah or an annoyed but in a positive like i i have all these questions and feelings yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know like we want that. And Especially in an art form where we want to feel. Like the whole point of it is to invoke feeling. Right. Right. You know, making art making is the miracle of making new work that isn't an adaptation. Mm. Is you're literally, it's the only godlike experience we have really as humans. Like you're literally making something from nothing. Mm. And if you unite and make that together out of yourselves, the power of that collaboration is like, oh my gosh. And it's a rush. Yeah. You're like, that came from you and that came from me and now there's this thing and it exists. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was talking to to Mark Adamo about this the other day and we were talking about what we've been working on and and he was talking about his timeframe for writing an opera and, and I think this is so reflective of like the landscape as it is now, you know, just sheer volume of mm. like, because people are commissioning chamber pieces and they're commissioning shorts and, yeah. but you're bringing like all the potency of your ideas and energy and actually really the demand of the form into those tiny, into those miniatures. Um, so you end up, you know, writing things in, oh my gosh, I think my, my record is a week. My record is a a week long piece in uh, a 55 zero minute piece in a, in a week but that I don't recommend that. Yeah. And I, and I, and actually, it's just balls to the wall. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't, I think when you're, you know, unless you have some sort of like weird Mozart fantasy, you know, I, I don't think anyone does the best work in that environment, you know, just cause you can doesn't mean you should. Right. Um, 
And in that instance, I had a composer. And I think actually that was, I basically won the jackpot in that uh, situation because the composer was actually a sound designer for theatre. And so he found every single dramatic beat that was in that text and yeah. landed it because yeah. that was his milieu. But I like, I was just lucky, yeah. you know? Um, normally that process takes months. Right. Um, so but as far as like ideation to completion, you know, anything from, depending on the company as well, six months to a few years. I'm working on a piece for ALT right now with Alexandra Vrabelov and finding, you know, sometimes just the process of finding an idea that speaks to both of you. Yeah. You know, um, in that specific case, I think I had a lot, you know, ALT wanted to commission Alexandra and they wanted to commission me and they wanted us to work together, um, which is unusual as a power dynamic. Yeah. Normally they'd be like, we want this composer, find the librettist that you want and then we'll commission. Right. Um, and so on, in that circumstance, you are really realistic about the fact that you have a very short space of time come up with an idea that the composer and the producing company want. Right. Um, and you better deliver or they'll go find someone else who can. Um, and that wasn't the case with that. So I think we went through like eight different topics. Um, and then we finally found a piece, uh, a novel that really spoke to everyone. You know, but then you have to get the rights. So right. sometimes it can end up, something that you think is going to be a, a year in three. Yeah. Um, so you just keep saying yes in the meantime to everything else. <laughs> <laughs> creatives are by nature people that are never quite truly 100% content with their work. <laughs> yes. You know, the, we always say that we are our, our, our harshest critic. Absolutely. And I mean, it, you can look through the, the greats of, of art constantly mm -hmm. tweaking this, tweaking that, tweaking. And I was, you know, I, I, I teach some photography mm -hmm. and, um, there's a piece at the Met Art Gallery right now that's a Degas, and it's Portrait of a Pensive Woman, I think is the name of it. Uh, if you go in, it's in the same room with the dancer. Um, and on the wall, and you'll notice it because it has two like coral-colored ibis hmm. in it. And I use this painting as um, kind of a note that if you leave your work unpublished long enough you'll tweak the hell out of it like over and over and over mm -hmm. so with this piece now this is again this is Degas <laughs> the guy knows his shit right <laughs> um, it started out as a portrait of a woman and then he needed like, he couldn't get his fingers out of it so he tweaked it by painting a fictional Middle Eastern city in the background that he just added and it's not a specific city it's just a city hmm from the Middle East because that was In what Vogue. he considered exotic at the time. Yes. And then it still didn't quite land for him, so he added these two birds out of nowhere. And in my mind, the birds were the line that was crossed. And I'm like, <laughs> right. and now you lost me. Because we have this pensive woman who clearly is going through something emotionally, and then you have these two random birds. And Right. And that's the guy in the gorilla suit. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. <laughs> and I feel like if you leave work too long... <laughs> Right. Or, and it, not necessarily too long, but we all have our sweet spot where we're like, okay, this is good. Let's get other eyes on this. 
and let's put it out there and see what happens. Or if we don't put it out there, let's at least get third parties involved. Right. Because we all just want to tweak, 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 tweak. Totally. Tweak, tweak. And, there, you know, there is an element to which, you know, I think it was Bernstein that said that, you know, uh, for greatness to happen, you know, one needs um, a great idea, not quite enough time. You know, so, so there's an element of that as well. So it's not entirely a bad thing that you sometimes have a very truncated timeline. No. I think it's quite a complicated time um, culturally to be a creative, mm-hmm. especially if you, if you consider yourself someone who... Um, if you consider the artist's role is to, in any way, is to hold up a mirror to society, mm-hmm. um, then then it's a complicated time to be telling stories. Yes. Um, you know, because of really needing to examine really deeply what your perspective is, what your perspective gives you the ability to express, you know, how to make space for other expressions, all of that stuff. And so I think, and maybe it's a virtue or an outcome of just having created a lot of work recently. Mm that I'm now at a stage where I'm like, oh, I'd really like to uh, engage over a space of time with some quite complex ideas and, and, um, and themes that, you know, woe betide you, really, if you don't take time to think about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, but yeah, it's not, it's not possible to do that in, in truncated forms and, and time, yeah. time constraints and it's not wise to. Um, well, there's always that as a creative, you have to think, is this my story to tell? Completely. And that's, uh, is this, is it my place to even bring up this topic? 100%. And if it is, if it is, why? You know, and that, I was having that conversation, I, you know, bringing it back, like when I first worked with um, DBR, with the Daniel Bernard Remain and that must have been I was still in my vocal performance uh, masters mm. so that must have been 2010 or 11 I guess um, it was when the Trayvon Martin killing mm. happened and um, and Daniel called me up and we were looking for a subject um, I'd been doing a new translation of um, The Soldier's Tale the Stravinsky so we were looking to create a partner piece with the same orchestration and yeah um, and he said, I, I want to write about, I want to talk about Trayvon. And, and I said, um, you know, Daniel, like I, I hundred percent support you writing an opera or an oratorio about Trayvon and about the killing of black men in America. And, yeah. um, that was a, we were involved in a, a sort of music for social justice collective. So that was very much kind of part of, um, but I was like, I, that is not hundred percent not my story to tell. <laughs> Um, White woman from England? Yeah, I know, so right? Not, what? Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's, that was really difficult because like Daniel had a platform. He wanted to use the platform. Yeah. And so I, and I, I supported that intention, you know, but I was like, I knew I wasn't the right person. And, um, and then, you know, we ended up, yeah. So that, that conversation has been a conversation that I've been having right since the beginning and of, of my writing. Um, and it only gets more and more. I think the flip side of that is that um, I think it's very easy to also back yourself out of work. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think as a woman especially, um, you know, I've seen this a lot where I've gone, I wouldn't take that job. And then I've seen someone take that job who also definitely couldn't write from that experience. Um, and so you have to, and I think as opera grapples with 
um, you know, uh, it's diversity issues, which it still has. Mm -hmm. It's getting better. It's definitely not solved. Um, you know, I think to myself, well, and I have conversations with uh, singers and friends of mine uh, who are mostly women of colour, who are my friends who are singers, who, you know, are like, I want to write, a, I want to sing a role where I'm not a maid. Yeah. You know, I want, I want a role where I'm, where I'm the diva, where I'm the, you know, and, and I'm like, great, well, I want to write that for you, you know, and so on the one hand, I'm going, well, this commission is with a white composer who's a dude, say, this is, a, this com commission doesn't exist. Yeah. But I mean, I've definitely had situations where I've gone, this commission is, is a commission in which the context is, you know, it's not going to be, I'm not going to be represented, it's not going to be representational writing. Right. And at the same time, I want, I want singers of colour to have the experience of getting to write roles that are written for them. Right. Um, that, you know, and so I, I'm struck by, um, oh, the actor from This Is Us talking about while he was grateful to have got to play a lot of roles where um, there was colorblind casting, mm -hmm. he was so grateful to get to play a role that was written for an African-American guy. Yeah. And ultimately, I hope that there will be enough librettists and enough composers of color, of you know every creed and every race and every sexuality and beyond gender, you know, who are writing that there's space for all of that. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like we're in the process of solving that problem and I don't want to wait. I don't want those singers and those performers and those audiences to have to wait to see themselves on stage right. until that librettist emerges. So I will try and I will listen really hard. Yeah. You know. Well, and, and that's where so much can come in with collaboration. Totally. You can bring somebody in to co-write or at least be like, tell me. Like as one. Right, exactly. Yeah. Tell me your story. Yeah. And I will assist in putting it down on paper so it can be put into music so that you can sing it. Yeah, but also like, let's reflect your creative input. Let's reflect, you know, you're a co-collaborator. It's not, because, you know, there's, there's definitely been instances where singers were really unpaid creative contractors. Yeah. And then they don't get the credit later. Oh, no, it should absolutely 100% be credited, paid, appreciated for what it truly is. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's a solution. I think mentorship is a solution. Um... I think that, uh, you know, also like I'm fortunate in that I'm traveling enough and I'm doing enough. You know, I was at Lib Lab in Toronto last summer and that was, that's a 10 day intensive that they only run every other year and they pull uh, three writers and three composers from um, everywhere actually to, um, to take part in that program. And, um, you know, and so you end up, you do, you, weirdly as a creative end up maybe knowing the diversity of the creatives who are actually working maybe more than the houses do especially when people are emerging mm -hmm. um so your opportunity to actually and i've done this i've passed i've passed on work and said no but you need to talk to this person yeah um and i think that advocacy for each other is really important as well um i mean i know this has already happened i know um through lib lab through the meetings that happened at lib lab um there's a, a Canadian librettist called um, uh, Kanika Ambrose who is doing a piece in Philly this year. Um, in fact, I think it just happened. Um, an education opera about Anansi the Spider. 
you know? And she has this very deep interest in, you know, African history and culture and, um, and she, and she's written the libretto and she's an amazing playwright. And she did, she wrote her first operas at LibLab. She's amazing. <laughs> um, I'm like, oh shit, I've had all this training, but you're like, dope. <laughs> <laughs> like already. And it's like been five minutes. Um, but yeah, you know, and that I think was, I think, um, Renee Orth, the composer, facilitated that. And I think that's the other thing that happens. You know, you let women into the space, you let diverse voices into the space and into the conversation, and we advocate for each other. Yeah. And we push each other forward. And, you know, that's awesome. More, please. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you working on right now? What, is, what are you... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what am I working on right now? Um, well... I just wrapped this Barbican piece. That was a super fast turnaround. Um, so that will have a couple of days of workshop before we go into rehearsal to the first performance in May. Um, that was a, a partnership with the Museum of London and Barbican Centre to write an immersive uh, promenade opera with electronics and live singers um, for a street in the old city of London, which is the period the place that's been most continuously inhabited. Mm -hmm. So there's tons of history. So I just wrapped that up. Um, I think I sent in the libretto last week or the week before. Um, so I think I had about 10 days on that. And I think the composer has about a month. So that's, that's one of those fast turnaround ones, but we're excited anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm working, I'm in the final redrafts of um, an opera called Dead Equal, which is going to the Edinburgh Fringe this year. Um, it's being presented in an army barracks by uh, Army at the Fringe. Um, and it was actually, the seed happened in 2016 when they let British women into full combat roles. And we've done a lot of work with the British Army and interviewed a lot of um, serving female military. And um, we're going to embed, we're embedding our singers um, with the army for a week before we go into rehearsal. Um, it's a really diverse cast. It's three women. It's a female creative team. The army have been super supportive. They don't commission because they uh, they don't want there to be any conflict of interest in terms of like propaganda. Okay. Um, which I like, you know. So it needs to be a reflection of an accurate reflection of how the army and militarism is perceived in British culture, um, and that weaves together a, a period and a contemporary story. That's with Rose Miranda Hall, um, and uh, it's about it's the story of the first British woman to um, serve on the front line and be decorated for bravery, which happened in the First World War, which no one knows. Right. <laughs> one of those uh, concealed stories, which are my favorite to write. Yeah. Um, and it interweaves her story with that of a um, uh, biracial contemporary female soldier um, who is based on the uh, testimonies of female soldiers that we interviewed for the project. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, and then after that, I'm doing a piece with uh, Renee Orth with I Am I Am Collective, which is a feminist response to Fran Nevent-Naven, <laughs> which I'm super excited about. Um, yeah, I'm just thrilled. Renee is so amazing and the singers in I Am I Am I Am Collective are fantastic. So we just found out we're doing a residency for that project with uh, Avlock in September. And then there'll be my ALT piece with Alexandra and there are a couple of other things but I can't talk about them yet well okay oh. then 
Um, yeah, but so it's going to be a busy, it's going to be a busy few months, but I'm really excited. Excellent. <laughs> so for any listeners who are interested in writing mm-hmm. libretti, mm-hmm. do you have any tips, suggestions? Mm. Yes. Start here or try this <laughs> or... <laughs> um, yes. I, I think it also depends if they're, if they're singers who want to start writing or whether they just want to write opera. Yeah. Um, just because of the familiar, familiarity with the form or not. Right. Um, so I think I would say that my first, you know, I'm a big believer, and maybe this is a bit old-fashioned, but I definitely find that my more experimental work has benefited from the time I've spent with the craft and the successes of the repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, it's a bit of a pain, but, like, read as many libretti as you can. I know this sounds, like, really obvious, but, like, read them and listen to the score and what the composer unpacks from the libretto. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that we did so much of um, with Corey Ellison at ALT and it was just invaluable um, because it just gives you so much of a sense of the possibilities. Um, Side note, yeah. I tell young singers to do that too. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> because they really, really should and it often falls on deaf ears. But Yeah, I mean, I and maybe this was just... I think I really, I loved theatre and I always did. And so even when I was a singer, I started with libretti always mm-hmm. when I was given a role um, and went from there, um, which maybe is why I ended up doing what right. <laughs> I do. But um, but yeah, I so I would say definitely like study libretti and then I would say um, go to as much contemporary music as possible, um, meet composers. Yeah. Um, and then I, I would say it depends also whether you want to create original work or whether you want to create ad- adaptation. There are, the thing is the opera industry is really making a concerted effort to be outward facing right now. Um, what I would say specifically in relation to opera is do not write your whole libretto and then go find a composer. And do not write your whole opera with your composer and then go find a producer. Because, which I see a lot, I see it a lot on the librettist forum, which is a great resource, by the way, uh, run by Ruth Mariner, who is also um, an alumni of the Opera Makers program. She was the year before me. Um, there's a librettist network on Facebook. Um, and I see people trying to pitch material that's basically finished. Mm. And, you know, it sounds crazy, but like in the same way that you would maybe not, you wouldn't wear the same dress to a nightclub as you'd wear to church. Yeah. You wouldn't write the same story for, you know, a nightclub in Brooklyn as you would for the Met. And so if you're writing a piece out of context without the producer in mind, then you're really robbing yourself of the best option for... Or you have to be prepared for it to sit for years. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think people just try so hard to make this stuff happen. And it's so much work that it's just really soul destroying when you see that, like on behalf of people, you just like ache for them, you know? So I would say like, if you can hold your horses in the making until you can at least start a conversation. And like, that doesn't mean you can't be like, 
you know, as composers go, it doesn't mean you can't be like thinking about musical structures and ideas as a right. librettist. It doesn't mean that you can't be thinking about, say, what story you want to adapt or yeah. checking whether the rights are available if it's an adaptation or, you know, whatever. But, um, but yeah, think about where you want it to go. And, and also like you, like I was so fortunate that I came out of Guildhall and I'd had this experience of working with singers and it had been a positive experience. And, you know, actually, Steve Smith said this to me, and it's such an obvious point, but he was like, you know, Lila, like, you just need the one job because the one job will get you the next job. Yeah. And since I started writing Libretti, that has been the case. So I think it's like, you know, you meet one composer, you do a great job, someone hears it, or they talk to that composer, and then they say, oh, my God, work with her, you know? So, like, and what, and, oh, I would never say this normally, but, like, you have to work for free a little bit to break in you do but not for very long don't yeah. do it for very long yeah <laughs> um and also make friends with singers this is that that's actually my big note to composers and singers make friends with composers yeah you know even if they intimidate you and even if you know oh god i just this is a whole nother podcast on composer uh singer collaboration but like it's so valuable yeah. on both sides. Yeah. And like all the work is coming from new music in all the ways that the field is expanding. Yeah. You know, if I could go back and do my postgraduate in voice again, I'd spend the entire time doing ear training and solfege. <laughs> all the stuff you wanted to get out of it as soon as humanly possible. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think, I guess those are probably my tips i mean because the rest of it is about taste go to the theater mm. and if you want to test a collaboration if you're thinking about getting into bed with a creative collaborator go to the theater together ah i like that <laughs> you need to see what they see and hear what they hear yeah and um, see what you agree on or see and what... where you diverge yeah yeah because you can work with someone who you know doesn't share your taste but it's going to be a it's going to be more difficult. Yeah. And also, you know, sometimes you'll meet a composer who's a brilliant symphonist and writes gorgeous art song, but doesn't have enough experience of drama to write drama. Right. And um, there's a lot of stuff on stages at the moment that is called opera that is um, more like oratorio or performance art or something that, I guess... For me, for me in the in the lyric tradition, like opera is drama, and um, so I will probably be most satisfied as a collaborator where where my composer wants to make drama. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, not with me, just on stage. <laughs> but um, but it's really important to figure out that that aesthetic intention. And sometimes it might be like you know, if someone if a composer comes to me and says, you know, I want to tell a story, but really I I sort of want to write. A symphony with vocal lines on top. I mean, that's their prerogative if yeah. they want to. Um, but it's really helpful to know that going in. Yeah. Um, and try and see how they, and also try and try and see how your collaborators dialogue in life. You know, what specifically try and have a conversation about something difficult. Because mm. you're going to have those conversations. Yeah. Um, I basically stalk, I, I stalk my composers, my favorite composers that I work with as much as I can. Like, 
it's just about time time together because you need to you need to be making the same piece yeah and it's you know there are people that you can do that remotely with but it's hard yeah get in the room get in the room and get to know singers listen to singers i mean if you're a composer and you're still at school or if you're a wannabe librettist and you're at a conservatory go listen to singing lessons Mm. like just go you know you hear how so much of what singers can do that's impressive like if you go and see like you know Rossini fireworks or you know Wagner Greer Grimsley you know like blast face blasting sound you know (laughs) like the reason that singers can do what they can do is because of how they train. Yeah. So it's like you wouldn't, like a, a race car driver isn't his engineer, but he knows how the engine works right. and he knows the principles on which it's based. So he knows how to drive to make the most of that machine. Yeah. And you need that information. It yeah. will make, oh man, because it will serve you the work so much more. Yeah. It's funny, I was, I'll cut this, but I've been watching the new show on netflix that's about f1 racing Mm -hmm. drive to die Mm -hmm. and listening because a lot of they'll they'll pull the dialogue from the mics in the drivers and so they're talking back and forth Mm. and so they have a cam over top of the driver's head so Mm -hmm. you can see their pov which is nuts in f1 you're hitting 200 miles an hour on normal city streets that you've just you know um but he can tell, they can tell when certain things are happening with the car based on how the car handles. So they can tell that like the, the, the steering is getting mushy because the tires are getting overheated. Mm-hmm. They don't have the grip they want, so he, you got a little bit of a drift and he's, he, it's starting to understeer. Mm-hmm. You know, those are becoming issues and he knows that he's understeering because of this problem mm-hmm. or it's got this clunk because of this issue. Mm-hmm. And so they can dialogue while he's, while he's racing and then pull into the pit and they know when to fix it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, you, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I don't want you to cut that because it, it's such a, I'm trying to think how to, how to kind of reintroduce this thought, but like my knowledge of the voice has enabled me to steer composers in a direction, in a situation where a singer was being trashed right. by what was on the page. Right. And I knew enough about the voice but the composer didn't enough to be like, do you hear what's happening in this rehearsal? I guarantee you by the end of the rehearsal, she will not be able to sing. Yeah. You know, and that's especially important with young singers. Yeah. Like, and you know, you also hear like, you need to understand the voice because not only, you know, (sighs) there are composers who are huge names right now who don't really care about vocal health. Yeah. And the longevity of the performance instrument. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you know, if people have spent 10, 15, 20 years learning to sing, then like it's my job also, if I can have any influence in the process, to protect their instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that means talking to a composer, or maybe sometimes, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, you can hear vocal problems coming early with a singer and you're like, we don't want to cast that singer. It's, be- it's beautiful right now, but it won't be yeah. in a couple months or after you know, a week of staging rehearsal. Yeah. So it's, it's really, if you're going to work in this form, I think, in a meaningful way, um, and be part of changing it for the better, then you need to know the instruments, you know? Yeah. And the instruments of people. Yeah. 
I think that's a great place to wrap up. Awesome. Thanks Thank so you. much. <laughs> this was really fun. Offering a very unique perspective into the industry, one that we don't get to hear very often. So Thanks. thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with two interview episodes and two social media sound bites each month. You can find me directly on Instagram at the beard and lens and the podcast Instagram is at opera biz. Thanks for listening to the opera biz podcast.